It had just snowed the night before. We still had some fresh snow on the mountains and the views were phenomenal. It's just amazing. There's so many little mountain, small mountain lakes and little fingers and trees and rocks and peaks. It's so beautiful. The second time I got back and I couldn't find anything, I descended down to pattern altitude, 800 feet. I was on downwind, I was reaching for the gear handle. I remember thinking that would be a good time for a thermal. And just as I thought that, the barrier started chirping. This is Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. If it's your first time joining us, we are so happy you are here and hope you'll be back soon for more aviation adventures and gliding content. If you love what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. Give us a review and follow us on social media at Soaring the Sky Podcast. Now you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to help us out even more, we'd love for you to go to our website, SoaringTheSky.com, and hit the support the show so we can continue to grow and bring you more great soaring content like today's episode that is once again packed full. Now, first, we will be headed to the Great Northwest where we find John Foster, our guest pilot, soaring over the Rocky Mountains in Montana. Now, this is a part of the world we have not heard too much about here on the podcast. So, I was super excited when he reached out to us to share his adventures and how he plans to help build the soaring community out there. Later on this episode, we will be talking to Doug Fernias. Doug is this year's winner of the Dust Devil Dash. Now, this is the 38th year of the competition. It's always a lot of fun. And one of the unique things about this event is you can actually compete in any glider. In fact, in years past, Doug flew his 1943 LK-10 and won. Now, today he's going to be breaking down the competition and also his flight in his ASW-20. And that's not all. We're going to be hearing another great segment from Sergio, the Soaring Master. And today he's going to talk about takeoff emergencies. All that right now on episode 127. John Foster, welcome to Soaring the Sky. So happy to have you today. How are you? Thank you. Doing very well, thanks. You know, we have talked a couple of times and we finally got this set up to do this and have a chance for you to tell your story and got some interesting things to tell us. We kind of talked about it earlier. But uh, with that, how did your aviation journey start? How did you get into flying gliders? Good question. <laughs> Ever since I can remember, I've had an interest in airplanes, aviation, that sort of thing. I think my very first toy that I ever was able to choose for myself um, was a toy 747. I grew up building model airplanes, the plastic ones. I also uh, grew up uh, building some of the little balsa stick and tissue paper models, like Guillos, I think is the, the brand, and then moved on to uh, building a Marx Models Wanderer uh, as a remote radio-controlled glider, uh, then started flying that, and uh, then I got into power uh, radio control airplanes. Money was tight when I was growing up, and it was just, uh, and then we moved, and then it wasn't convenient, and I really didn't uh, continue much with that. But then when I uh, started college, I had the opportunity to take ground school for a uh, some college credits, so I did that. Uh, but got to the end of that and realized that my financial situation at the time was just not such that I'd be able to continue with flight lessons. And so I kind of put that on the back burner, just haven't ever gotten to the point of getting my power rating. I did pick up flying the radio control gliders again in college. I uh, got to the point where I even designed and built a fiberglass glider radio control glider with a, a balsa core foam, uh, sorry, a balsa sheeted foam core wing, uh, 50 inch slope soar. It flew remarkably well for my first ever designed glider. <laughs> uh, I did have to cut the aileron wow, nice. core, uh, ailerons back and lengthen the cord on the ailerons to get it to respond a little bit better, but it flew quite well. And so I did that a little bit uh, during college and then um, 
you know, I've always had the interest, but just never the financial the financial ability to pursue it until I was uh, on YouTube uh, and I bumped into one of Bruno Vassell's videos with my prior background of flying uh, slope soaring radio control gliders. Uh, one of his videos, he was soaring a slope and it just really piqued my interest. And so I ended up watching all of his videos on his whole channel and uh, decided, you know, this is something that I could actually do now. It wasn't as expensive as flying powered airplanes. And so I talked to my wife and she was very supportive and she got me one of the SSA fast certificates for Christmas. And then April of 2018, I started taking lessons at the Spokane Soaring Society, just north of Spokane in Deer Park, Washington and ended up getting my check ride done in October of that year. And I've been flying gliders since. Ah, very nice. That was a little bit of a drive from where you were, right? Uh, yes, it is. Spokane. <laughs> uh, living in Northwest Montana here, <laughs> that's about a three hour and 45 minute drive one way to go take lessons. Oh, wow. Uh, that was a bit of a challenge. What we do for uh, soaring. Yes. <laughs> Uh, the <laughs> next closest glider operation here in Montana is um, the Flying Y Airport uh, in the Paradise Valley, just north of Yellowstone Park. But that's about four hours and 15 minute drive. So can you tell me about the area you are mostly flying now, the, the train, the advantages, the disadvantages? So we're in Ronan in uh, the Mission Valley of northwestern Montana. It's between Missoula and Kalispell. It's about an hour, hour and 15 minutes south of Glacier National Park. And uh, we have the Mission Mountain Range, which runs north-south immediately to our west here. And then the valley stretches out, sorry, immediately to the east. And then the valley stretches out to the west. I'm still new to flying this area, but there seems to be a pretty good mix of ridge soaring on the right days, as well as thermal soaring out in the valley. Looking up at the sky for a number of years here, I've seen a number of lenticular clouds. So it looks like there's potential for wave soaring here as well. Although I haven't been flying here long enough to be able to get any personal experience in that. But uh, hopefully right. we'll be able to do something in that regard this winter or next spring. So looks like we've got a pretty good you, mix you a... of... Go ahead. I'm sorry, do you have a grass strip or what's what's the layout there? The, the Ronan Airport is a paved runway, about 4,800 okay. feet long, uh, 75 feet wide. Uh, one of the challenges we face here is that we have some runway lights which stick up oh, about 18 inches or so thereabouts. Uh, but they're yeah, right. about another 10 feet out beyond the edge of the paved runway. So between the runway lights, we've got about 95 feet uh, the elevation of the airport is at about 3,000 feet. Density altitudes in the summer can get 5,000 feet or higher, depending on the temperature, but it's not too high. One of the things that I've noticed here is that the cloud bases don't tend to be quite so high as uh, your typical cloud bases in the western U.S., I've managed to fly so far here without needing to use any oxygen. Okay. But, uh, hopefully, awesome. hopefully that will change. <laughs> what type of tow plane do you have there? The uh, the plane we use here is a Cessna 170. It's got a 180 horsepower okay. motor in it, um, constant nice. speed prop. So it's got a little bit of oomph. Yeah, it seems to job. work adequately. Yeah. Now, um, in our chats earlier you share with me the story of the glider that you're currently flying and it's it's got an incredible history can you please share the story with our listeners sure when i was uh, taking lessons in deer park washington the mechanics hangar um, has a little attic in it and i was helping out there and climbed up there and saw this glider up in the attic and as i looked closer it looked like it was a phoebus now, from reading Bruno Vassell's website and watching his videos, I was aware that he had started out with a Phoebus as his first glider, 
as I inquired a little bit more about it, they mentioned to me that they were actually trying to sell this glider. Um, they had a good buyer at the time lined up, and uh, so I didn't really think a whole lot of that. But um, as time went on, that uh, buyer apparently fell through. So they mentioned to me that it was still for sale again. Oh, nice. They were only wanting $2,000 for it. Wow. Uh, the, the trouble was that it didn't like come with a trailer. <laughs> yeah. Right. So another friend of mine um, got onto FaceTime with me and did a pre-buy inspection of the glider with me while I was there. And all the critical areas seemed to check out okay. And so I went ahead and bought it. Uh, the trouble was, though, that um, the Phoebus has a bit of a reputation of being very pitch sensitive. And I was counseled not to fly it as a brand new licensed glider pilot with only 13 or more hours to my name at the time. Right. And I took that advice to heart, but it needed a little bit of work. And so I got to uh, replacing the instrument panel and installing some instruments and whatnot. Part of the trouble with it as well was that the uh, title for the glider was kind of in limbo. When you looked on the FAA website and looked up the end number, all it said was sale reported. It didn't show who the owner was or nothing. Oh, no. Uh, so trying to fill out a bill of sale uh, took a little bit of uh, legwork. Apparently, the previous owner had sold it to another club member who had flown it a few times, didn't like it, and then either sold it or traded it back to the previous owner. He didn't fill out a bill of sale for that transaction, though, and when the registration came due, the guy who had bought it, the, the other club member, just wrote on the registration that he had sold it back to the previous owner, but he spelled his name wrong, and he had a different oh, no. address on there. In the meantime, both of these guys died. I was able to get in contact with the owner's widow, and uh, she had actually donated the glider to the club uh, for the club to sell. Uh, or to use as a club glider. And so I was able to get a little bit of additional history uh, that way. I had to fill out an affidavit with my registration application and uh, submit that to the FAA saying that I had done everything that I could in my power to find who the legitimate registered owner was, um, but uh, was unable to do so. It was quite a, quite a number of hoops that I had to jump through. But we got it all sorted out and uh, finally got the registration cleared and now have it in my name. Uh, in the process of all of this, I requested a CD-ROM from the FAA, uh, which had all of the documents of what they had of the glider. The glider apparently had been uh, landed hard at one point. They'd done some repair work to it. I looked through and saw all the different um, registrations, previous owners, and one of the names kind of stuck out at me. It was a Scandinavian-sounding name. Uh, it was the first registered owner that they had here. And then back in 2019, I was looking on Facebook again, and somebody had posted a picture of uh, Steve Fawcett and Einar Enevoldsen, uh when they had uh, just landed after setting their altitude record back in 2006, where uh, they had gotten up to 50,000 feet, was 50,727 or something like that was the, the altitude record that they had set at that time. And uh, the two of them had uh, started the Perlin Project. And I, right. I got yeah. to thinking, that name sounds familiar. So I went back and I looked through the records from the CD-ROM that I'd gotten from the FAA. And sure enough, the owner, the first owner of my glider was Einar Innovolson. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. So I got onto the Perlin Project website and there's a little link that says contact us. And I wrote a little note saying I just bought this glider and I was in the process of 
restoring it, fixing it up, and uh, just wanted to see if this really was Einar Ennevoldsen's glider. Right. And he actually wrote back to me and uh, said, I love that glider. Apparently, in his previous career, he had been a test pilot with the U.S. Air Force and had been on an exchange program with the Royal Air Force back in the 1960s, uh, working on their uh, British Electric Lightning. Uh, I think that was the first supersonic uh, jet that they had, uh, that the uh, British Air or the Royal Air Force developed. And while he was over there in England, he had ordered this glider from Germany and had it imported into the United Kingdom. Apparently, what he told me was that this particular glider was the very first fiberglass glider ever imported into the United Kingdom. Oh, wow. Some of your listeners may know that the Phoebus uh, was the first production model fiberglass glider that was ever produced. Yeah, this glider has a little bit of history. Yeah, that, 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 that's wild. <laughs> yeah. You never know, right? You never <laughs> know. This glider just sitting there that's been sitting there years, and who would have known, right? Yeah, I'd been sitting up in the hangar, uh, in the attic of this hangar, undercover for 20-plus years. Yeah, the first ever fiberglass glider imported into the United Kingdom. Oh, that's crazy. John, you know, you live in an amazing part of the world, and I was happy to hear from you because we really haven't heard from anyone in, in Montana as far as yeah. you know, anyone wanting to share their story in that part of the world. But it's been some years now, but I was actually through that area with my family. We took a uh, train across the country, and I remember looking at my wife shortly after reaching the Rocky Mountains. She had never been that far west, and tears were rolling down her face, and she said mm -hmm. she had never seen so much beauty in one place. It, it was absolutely stunning. I can't even imagine the incredible views you get to experience every time you jump in the glider. Oh, my goodness. Just driving over the hill into the Mission Valley from Missoula, you come up over the hill and you see the mountains and it's just like hits you right in the face. And it just, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And when I first got here, the the thought of flying along these mountains was just one of the, it was, it was a dream. My first flight here was on June 15. It was a bit of a logistical struggle to get everything all together, but we finally got everything done. We had a late takeoff. It was probably around 5 p.m. We had enough wind coming out of the west to create some decent lift along the Mission Mountains and uh, took a tow up to I want to say about 8,000 foot elevation, so about a 5,000 foot tow. It had just snowed the night before. We still had some fresh snow on the mountains, and the views were phenomenal. It was amazing. The flight was only about an hour long, but and it wasn't anything record-breaking, so to speak. But to try to describe it in words is... It's just amazing. There's so many little mountain, small mountain lakes and little fingers and trees and rocks and peaks. It's so beautiful. It's just incredible. The next week, I took another flight. It's my second flight here. Flew from Ronan up the missions up to the south end of Flathead Lake. Turned around, flew all the way down to the south end of the Mission Mountains, down around St. Ignatius. Turned around. And on my way back, I uh, got quite a bit of good lift and was able to climb all the way back. And then I had enough altitude where I was able to keep going. And I kept going and kept going. I wasn't losing a whole lot of altitude. And I flew all the way up to Woods Bay along the edge of the Mission Mountains. And then when I turned around and started to head back, I encountered some sink. And uh -huh. <laughs> I kept going, <laughs> and the sink kept going, and the sink kept going. Oh, no. I looked at my flight computer and realized that I didn't have any landable fields within gliding range. Boy, <laughs> that gave me my first real scare. I sent up a prayer, and as I kept flying along the... Uh, 
the sink stopped and went around a little bulge in the mountain and finally got into some lift and was able to keep going and uh, eventually made it back to um, the south end of the lake. And I was almost back up to my uh, original height that I had left the mountains or left uh, the south end from. And I was able to then fly out oh, into nice. the valley, keeping myself in final glide to Ronan Airport. And right, yeah, it was an over three-hour flight along the the Mission Mountains, and uh, it was amazing, just amazing. <laughs> I know. Talking about that soaring in that part of the world it can be very dangerous. So, what do you do before flying in an area you haven't flown before? I think you take it slow. <laughs> yeah. It's very important that you know where you can land and that you don't go beyond where you know you have a safe landing. Uh, there have been a few flights yeah. where I've been venturing down along the Mission Mountains and have started to um, lose altitude, and I've had to turn around and actually head back to the airport yeah and i've made it back in time one of the things i've done is i've set a safety altitude on my flight computer for a thousand feet and then i use a turnaround point of around a thousand feet on top of that oh good deal yeah i like to set a, a mccready of four or even more if uh, okay. i need to so that gives me a safety buffer a margin the other thing that I think would is very important is to get together and talk with other more experienced glider pilots who have flown in the area. We do have one other glider pilot who has lived here a while and has flown around quite a bit. And I've managed to talk with him a number of times and gotten his input about how the Mission Mountains work and how the thermals in the valley work. I just think it's very important that you give yourself that safety margin and that you don't become overconfident and push yourself into a situation that you're going to get yourself in trouble. Absolutely. Yeah. John, I know when we first spoke, you told me how you would love to build a soaring community in that area. And, you know, it's Montana. We haven't heard a lot about soaring. So what are your plans and how do you think you could accomplish this? So as you are probably well aware, um, aviation in general is in decline in many areas of the country and the world, really. We have a lot of pilots that are aging out, and the average age of glider pilots is growing. Yeah. I think one of the ways of addressing that is to try to get young people involved. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd really like to try to work with some of the local uh, young people here. A friend of mine is the director of the local Boys and Girls Club. I've approached him about doing some kind of after-school program with the kids, uh, introducing them to aviation. For those that have an interest, I have uh, a setup for Condor with VR goggles, and I'd like to eventually get my CFIG and then work with these kids, starting them off with Condor in a uh, low risk, low commitment type environment. And then for those that show interest, who are willing to treat it more than just a video game, right? to then transition them into actual flight lessons. Uh, we have a number of other people in the area who are interested in starting a, a soaring club. There's a group of maybe five or six people down in Missoula or more. There are some people up in the Kalispell area, as I understand as well, who are also interested. We've had another person who has purchased a vacation home here up in Polson, who has um, brought his glider up here. He has an ASH 31 MI, so a, a motor glider. And oh, nice. I've gotten to go on a few flights with him. The other gentleman who lives up here. He has a PIC 20E. He's also that's also a motor glider, and uh, the three of us have actually gone on uh, a few flights together, which has been incredibly enjoyable. So there are some people around that are interested. Uh, I'd like to see if we can 
generate more interest. Uh, I'd like to see if we could get more people from outside uh, coming up here for a soaring safari, just to see what a beautiful area this is to fly. I would say the conditions are not the booming conditions that you see in the Great Basin or you know some of these other famous soaring sites, but the scenery, right. I think it'd be really hard to match. Uh, there's oh, the so much potential. Um, and then to you know to try to get a club going here where we could get young people involved. You know we, we live. Uh, right in the middle of an Indian reservation, and there's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of yeah. drugs and alcohol, and yeah. a lot of kids grow yeah. up with not a whole lot of hope for anything better. And yeah. to be able to show right. them something that could give them a future that would, you know, help to lift them up out of this poverty and these difficult social situations that so many of them find themselves in, I think that would be such a worthwhile endeavor to try to get get something going that could really help them and it would also help the soaring community. And I think that if if one sets the club up correctly, I think it's something that could be done very affordably. You know, you you need a little bit of initial capital investment. You need a two-seater training glider. Yeah. We're working on trying to get one of those lined up. But once you have that, I think this is something that could be done very affordably and make flying accessible to more than just people with money. Yeah, absolutely. And Condor alone and simulators can be a huge kickstart without spending a lot of money. You know, get get the kids interested in I that agree. first. And yeah, you can do so much on that before you even get into the cockpit. Absolutely. And with the VR, it, it it literally does put them in the cockpit. Absolutely, yeah. It's, I think it's a fantastic tool. Uh, obviously, it is limited. Um, you know, you don't get that push in the seat of your pants like you would normally get with the G forces right, yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. But as far as the eye hand coordination and oh, yeah. procedural stuff, it I think it's a fantastic resource, and it's such a low risk. You know, if you're you're looking at liability concerns, parents who are a little bit concerned about getting their kids involved with something like this, Condor, I think, is a fantastic way to bridge that gap. Yeah, even on the, you know, I I wish I had had that when I first was learning to fly because trying to follow the tow plane alone, that's one of the things that takes a while. And you can do so much of that practicing on the simulator. So when you actually do have to do yes. it, you know, you're just going to be, it's going to be a lot easier. And the the cost involved is negligible. <laughs> compared oh, yeah, yeah. To right. Yeah. You cut out all those toes that normally you would have had to do, you know. Yeah. I, I think you're definitely on the right track there. You know, in order for this to happen, I, I need more experience myself. I've only got uh, right. oh, like a tenth of an hour shy of 70 hours at this, at the time of right. this uh, interview. Yeah. So, you know, I need more experience myself. I need I need to build my my experience before I go start teaching people. Uh, yeah, I, so I agree. That, but I think, is the first step for me. But getting the ball rolling doesn't take that, you know, talking yes. to people and getting this thing going. Yeah, there are other people that could uh, do the teaching. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if you get a club going and... Uh, there's somebody who joins who's already a CFIG, then that uh, yeah, that could certainly work in that regard. John, I know we had spoke a little bit about it previously, safety, but we do, of course, like to focus on safety here on the podcast. Do you have any other advice how to be a better and safer pilot? Yes. I think one of the things that is often neglected is sleep. Yeah. I find for myself that if I've had a bunch of late nights and I'm sleep deprived, even if I've had some caffeine to keep myself awake, I find right. my reaction times are slower and I tend to get behind the glider. And that can be deadly. Oh, yeah. It's so yeah. important that you keep flying ahead of the glider and your reaction times need to be quick. And if you haven't gotten enough sleep, that can really make a 
a significant impact on your ability to react or to proactively prevent getting yourself in a in a dangerous situation. Oh yeah, absolutely. John here on the podcast, you know, we try to give everyone a chance to give a shout out to the people that have helped them make it possible to soar and and thank anyone you'd like to thank, but now's your chance to do that. I've got a number of people that I'd like to thank for uh, first of all, would be my wife for being so supportive. She really has been a tremendous support in that regard. Jim Bobiak uh, has been a big uh, encouragement, friend, mentor. He's involved with the uh, Spokane Soaring Society out of Deer Park in Washington. Uh, just a real good friend and help. Greg Mecklenburg and Ursula Howland from the Flying Y Airport, uh, just north of Yellowstone Park. Uh, Greg has just been so patient working with me to get my skills tuned up to help prepare me for flying my Phoebus glider. Aaron Thompson from uh, Morgan, Utah. He's been an invaluable resource uh, and such a tremendous help uh, with getting my Phoebus back up and running. Uh, and then the good folks at Williams Soaring Center, Will, uh, Rex Mays and Noel, that whole crew there, they've been a huge help to me earlier this year in getting me finally into flying my Phoebus. Um, just very thankful and grateful uh, to all of them for their help. All right, here on the podcast, we like to do something called the lightning round. It's just a fun segment where we ask you a question. You get to give us a short and quick answer. Or, of course, you can pass and go to the next question. So what do you think? Are you up for it? Let's go for it. All right. If you could only pick just one, what glider port or region would be at the top of your bucket list of places to go soaring and why? I would think around Nephi, Utah. Uh, from watching all of the videos from Bruno Vassal, you have the mountains and the high cloud bases and just the tremendous potential for these great flights. I, that, that's really a place I'd like to fly. Nice. What's the highest altitude you've ever been in a glider and where was it? 12,700 feet. It was uh, at the Flying Y Airport in uh, the Paradise Valley here in Montana. I was in a 233. That was another memorable flight. Nice, 233, love it. What's your favorite type of lift, thermal, wave, ridge, or conversions? Ridge lift. To be able to fly at speed, long distances, without having to stop in thermal, uh, there's nothing like ridge lift. I agree. Your favorite glider port accommodations, tent, RV, or local motel? Probably a tent. I enjoy camping. Okay, nice. Okay, so you get back to your pad, whatever that is, after a long day of cross-country soaring in the summer. What's the first thing you do? Take a shower, drink a cold beverage of choice, look at your flight trace and start making notes of what you did wrong, or you flop on the bed and take a nap while still wearing your bucket hat. <laughs> um, I think for me, it would be to look at my fly trace, not necessarily to see what I did wrong, but just to see what officially has been recorded and just relive the memories of the flight. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So you're at the gas station and someone comes up to you and they ask what's in the trailer. Now, do you say a mini drag racing car, a submarine, a large model rocket, or be boring and just tell them it's a glider? I'd say it's a glider, and I'd get out, and I'd offer to open the back and show them. Nice. Get them interested, right? That's right. What's the strangest or most spectacular thing you've ever seen in the glider cockpit? In the cockpit? Boy, that's a tough one. I think I'm going to have to pass on that one. <laughs> okay, so if money's no object, what would be your choice of a glider you would like to purchase? I think probably either an AS-33 or a JS-3. Nice. Well, John, that about wraps it up for me and what I have questions for you. Anything last minute you'd like to ask? Anything last minute you'd like to add before we say goodbye? Yeah, if there's anybody that's interested in uh, coming and flying with us here in uh, Ronan or the Mission Valley, 
There is a Facebook page. I set up uh, Mission Mountain Soaring Society Interest Group. You can request to join there. And uh, if you wanted to maybe include in the show notes or something like that, some contact information for us. Absolutely. Yeah, we can do that. Uh, people could get in touch with uh, me or a tow pilot and uh, we can see if we can get you up in the air here. Absolutely. Help grow the club. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Any other social media, Instagram, anything like that you want me to add? You can always send it over to me. I can, like I said, I'll, I, I will put that in the show notes, but. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel with a number of videos. I'm still a novice at editing YouTube videos, <laughs> but I've uh, posted a few uh, YouTube videos of uh, some of my flights here in this area. Very nice. Yeah, I've checked some of those out, but yeah, we can definitely put that in the show notes as well. Well, thank you, John. It's been nice talking to you. I'm glad we finally got this together and was able to chat. You too. Thank you. Yes. Absolutely. And yeah, anything we can do here at Soaring the Sky, be glad to help promote and, and grow your club. And that goes for anyone you know out there listening that's trying to get their club to grow. We will do what we can, throw the word out there. And uh, that's what it's all about, just growing the Soaring community. Yeah. We're all a big family here. Yes. Yes, we are. <laughs> Thank you, John. You take care. Thank you, Chuck. You too. Bye now. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America, and they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. Hello, Doug. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Chuck. Glad to be here. You know, I kind of feel like I know you already because back on episode 95, um, Christopher Stevenson had sent me some stories that were shared by you in a hangar. That was a while back. But, of course, if listeners want to check that out, they can listen to that episode. Uh, that one, I believe, is titled Winglets, War Stories, and Dust Devils. But I recently reached out to you because you had just competed in the Dust Devil Dash where you were actually the winner. Congratulations on that. I am looking forward to hearing all about that. I know the listeners are as well. But for those that are not familiar with this event, could you tell us a little bit about it, where it's held, how long it's been around, how long the event lasts, the rules, all the good stuff. We want to hear about it. Sure. The, the Dust Devil Dash has, is a one-day old-school free distance contest. It's not a race. It's whoever goes the furthest in any direction from Mountain Valley Airport into Hatchapi from a single toe to 3,500 feet AGL. And uh, the uh, competition is handicapped. So any sailplane can enter and your distance is multiplied by your uh, US uh, system handicap, your Herald handicap number. Oh, nice. So just anybody. Any glider can enter. And in fact, 126s have one and um, um, ASW-29s have one. It doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of difference how high the performance of your glider is, except for specific dust devil dashes, depending on the weather. Some years, the weather favors a high performance glider. Some years, it favors a low performance glider. Oh, interesting. So, you know, 20, 22 to 1 gliders have one and 60 to 1 gliders have one. Uh, it oh, was excellent. started 38 years ago by um, Rob Morgan. And Rob's still an active pilot at Tehachapi. He founded it as just a fun way to close out the season. It's always been traditionally scheduled the Saturday after Labor Day weekend. Oh, very nice. Okay, lay it out for us. The terrain, what it's like, how it all works. And then I want to, of course, get into the event itself and want to hear about your story flying this year. Sure. Well, uh, as I said, the event always is held at Mountain Valley Airport in Tehachapi. Tehachapi is a mountain valley of approximately 4,200 feet high at the airport, uh, surrounded by 9,000-foot Tehachapi Mountains. 50 miles north is the start of the Sierras, 
and then the Sierras run uh, all the way up past Reno um, through the Owens Valley with on the east side of the Owens Valley being the Inyos and the White Mountains. So that describes some of the best cross-country soaring country in the world. And um, just look at the OLC scores from the Minden Fellows and you see how far people go. And flights, the longest flights ever made in a Dust Devil Dash have always been to the north from Tehachapi. And the longest flights have ended up in either Oregon or Idaho. You can fly in any direction you like. You can fly to the east or you can fly to the south. You won't get very far before you run into the Mexican border. But to the east, there's lots of land. And you can fly to the west or to the northwest in the San Joaquin Valley. But traditionally, those routes are not as good, although depending on the weather, they might be favored. And this year, the weather was particularly difficult and did favor going into the San Joaquin Valley, which is very unusual. So all the pilots went in that direction? No, there were, uh, it was split. Half the pilots went into the San Joaquin, which is a large, everyone should know it's a giant valley in the middle of California mostly farmland, and its elevation is typically around 500 feet MSL. We're at 4,200 feet, so you basically glide out of Tehachapi into the San Joaquin and keep gliding for a long time before you hit the first uh, soarable air. Your, your, most of the flight will be below your takeoff elevation. Um, three wow. pilots went to the San Joaquin, and three pilots went the traditional route to the north, all three of them because they were comfortable, they knew where the outlanding sites were, and they were just not comfortable going into San Joaquin since uh, no one, none of the six pilots had ever flown there before into the San Joaquin. Now, oh, I wow. mentioned only six pilots. That's a very small field. Normally, we have 15 to 25 pilots, which makes it quite a competition. This year, the originally scheduled date We had a hurricane coming up from Mexico, and it promised uh, pouring rain at launch time on Saturday after um, Labor Day weekend. And um, uh, a decision was made to postpone the competition for one week. As weather goes, it turned out it was flyable on the originally scheduled date, but it had been rescheduled already. So that we... We showed up on the following day and some people had to drop out because with the schedule change, they, they didn't have the opportunity to come because of the reschedule. And then other people dropped out because the weather forecast was, the soaring forecast was so dismal. The weather was very nice, very pleasant, sunny, light winds, etc. But the soaring forecast just was not good at all, uh, much lower, poorer than normal for Tehachapi. Uh, basic layout of the soaring forecast was if you go north, the normal route, there might be some light wave just out, off of Tehachapi that can get you about 8,000 feet high. And it looked like you could inch your way up to Inyo Kern if you were lucky, which is 50 miles away. But the um, Walt Rogers, who did the weather for us, believed that it was next to impossible to keep that going all the way up to Lone Pine and to connect with the better soaring conditions that were up north. But if you did, you probably could have gone hundreds of miles. Wow, yeah. Three people attempted that route, and um, the weather turned out to be exactly as predicted. The other forecast was you could go into the San Joaquin, and there would be weak lift, and weak lift being one to two knots of climb, uh, up to about 3,000 AGL, crossing the uh, lower end of the valley. And if you could get your way across there over to just west of Taft, there's a low mountain range. And the prediction was that would improve and you could turn north and um, progress with um, some decent soaring for a while. It turned out that forecast was accurate. And of the three of us that uh, attempted it, all of us made it to Taft. One uh, wasn't able to connect with uh, the lift on the low mountain range. And uh, two of us were, and we kept going and and had a good time for quite a while until we uh, hit an area of um, 
strong wind coming in from the coastals, flying through a gap in the mountain range, and it, it shut everything down, and we both landed at the same place. That was Tom Riley, TR, and myself. How long is the event then? Well, the event is you, you meet Saturday morning. There's a pilot's okay. meeting at 9. After the pilot's meeting, you take off whenever you want to, and it ends when you land. Okay. All right. Cool. It's a one-day event. So you can fly, and it has to be legal, so it ends at sunset, technically. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I want to get a little deeper into the race itself and your journey. So can you tell us about that? Well, I was flying an ASW-20. I considered switching to one of my vintage gliders. It would have been the LK-10, which I've flown in the Dust Devil Dash in the past. Um, but I decided to stick with the 20 because of having the, uh, the legs, the range to um, go between good landing sites. Um, it turns out, having seen the uh, lower San Joaquin from the air down close and personal, that a, an old glider would be just fine because there's there are plenty of safe landing sites. But I had the SW-20, gave me a good glide off to Hatchapi. We have, uh, we're required to take a 7,700 foot or less tow, which is a 3,500 foot tow above the airport. So everybody released at 7,700 and we glide into the still air, into the San Joaquin. I had a 30-minute glide without any bumps at all from release, 30 minutes from yeah. release. It seemed wow. like forever, but I checked it 30 yeah. minutes on the recording. At 30 minutes, I hit the first thermal. It was over Freeway 5 as it drops down into the valley through um, the grapevine, the pass known as the grapevine. And that thermal was a one knotter that I gained 500 feet in, and I was elated. That was a massively better than the glide. <laughs> 500 foot climb at one knot. And, and I turned at that point toward an airport called Skydive San Joaquin. It's as, it, as its name, it's a skydiving airport because it was a nice safe landing site. And it was kind of on the way that I wanted to go. And I headed there and I found a couple of other small thermals that I worked gained a few hundred feet in each one and I arrived at skydive a little bit above the pattern and started trying to get higher. I spent a lot of time there. I ended up spending 50 minutes at skydive San Joaquin between pattern altitude and 3000 feet. Twice I made it to 3000, which is 2200 above the ground and headed west toward Taft. I headed west as far as I could looking for the next thermal before uh, I had to glide back to San Joaquin. And then I turn around and go back because I, I liked having that nice runway. I mean, the Dust Devil Dash is all about fun. And so safety is paramount. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the third time I, I did that, I got tired of that, but I did. Oh, the second time I got back and I couldn't find anything, I descended down to pattern altitude, 800 feet. I was on downwind. I was reaching for the gear handle and I, 800 AGL, and I I remember thinking that would be a good time for a thermal. And just as I thought that, the barrier started chirping. Nice. So it turned, <laughs> turned into lift, and it wasn't lift. It, it was zero sync. It, I did a full circle and was still at pattern altitude. So I did two or three more, and I gained about 50 feet. And so I just kept doing that, and it gradually got stronger. And after 30 circles, I got to 3,000 feet. Wow. So that was a slow climb <laughs> right over an airport, so it was safe. Yeah, and I right. even called them on the radio on their frequency and made sure there were no jumpers and no jump planes. And they said, nope, you can do anything. Yeah. Um, nice. They did, they did launch a jump plane shortly after I left. I got there. I headed back toward Taft again. Didn't find anything turned around to come back. And just after I turned around, I hit a booming thermal that was a two knots on the averager. And I went to 4,400, I think it was. So that was um, 50 minutes from the time I got there to the time I got to 4,400 and really, really could not plan on coming back. Well, that was kind of the most um, exciting part, that and the landing. Um, there was pretty good lift from there to Taft. Um, after Taft, uh, we turned north. Um, wanting to get to this mountain range that's west of Taft, uh, but I needed to get higher. 
and I wanted to keep a good landing site in range. So I just uh, kept that in range and looking for lift. I found a, found the thermal, got up um, high enough, 46, I think, and headed uh, for the range. And the range uh, was working as advertised by the weather briefing. Um, immediately got into a good thermal that was about four knots on the average year and climbed to 7,000. And that was fantastic. We were almost to tow release. Kept, kept flying along the ridge for a ways until we got to about, oh, and by the way, TR, Tom Riley, um, Tango Romeo call sign, was um, following the same route. He was about 20 minutes behind me. He managed to get up on the, the range also, and we were both doing good. Up about uh, airport called Wonderful Pistachios and Almonds, and that is the name of the airport. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, there we started fading out toward the east as advertised by the weather briefing. I didn't fade enough, but we did. And things were looking good. At that point, I had 400 feet over glide to Avenal. And Avenal is a the main soaring site in the San Joaquin Valley. So there would be gliders there and people there on a Saturday. And so that would have been a fun place to land. And right after I had 400 feet Glide to, above glide to Avenal, things started deteriorating. I started hitting a lot more sink than lift and just couldn't find anything workable. Uh, Tom was still up on the ridge line doing okay, but he was behind me. He hadn't hit the bad area. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll go back to the ridge line. That was not a good idea, it turned out. We both came down like a rock and we both needed a place to land. Our alternate at that time was a marked in the uh, glider landing site database site called Carrillo Nelson Ranch. We saw it on the map and we looked at it from the air. It looked pretty good. And we, I landed there and 20 minutes later, uh, Tango Romeo landed there. Both uneventful landouts. Pretty much uneventful. Uneventful. It's a, it's a cow, a cattle ranch. It's a cow pasture. Gigantic. You can land anything in there size wise, but, um, you know, uh, animal holes and cow pies to run into, but otherwise yeah. just fine. It was a lot windier. The only thing unexpected for me is the amount of wind, fortunately landing into the wind, was, was even more than I thought. And, it, and just earlier in the flight, we had had light winds all day. So this was howling wind. Wind enough, you have to tie the glider down. Oh, wow. And um, so the landing rollout was very short. That part was good. Tom landed and part two of the story started because we got the gliders tied down and started trying to figure out how are we going to get them out of there. My crew, Yuto Shinagawa, was chasing me very well because there was so much time spent circling on this flight. It was really slow. It definitely wasn't a race. I think it took three hours and 10 minutes to go 100 miles. Yeah. And so he was able to keep up. So he was there when I landed at the gate, nice. the ranch, <laughs> which was about one mile away from where we landed. It's the gates out at the road at the highway. And um, Tom and I soon discovered there were gates, locked gates into the area we were in too. And they were not, uh, they were gates we could handle. They were chains with padlocks and we had a chain cutters and a new lock to replace the link we cut so we could fix them all up. But then out at the main highway, the gate had a much more substantial, uh, rather intriguing sliding mechanism with um, about nine padlocks on it. So individual owners oh can goodness. get in. <laughs> and, and there wasn't any way to, to break in unless you had a cutting torch. I mean, it was, it was heavy duty. So we weren't getting in. And, and it's now probably and maybe 45 minutes or an hour after we landed, because all this took time and we walked about a mile to get from the glider to the gate. And Yuto's madly working on his phone, trying to get information about how to find the owners. Do they have a phone number? Turns out the ranch that's back in there doesn't even have electricity. So we're there uh, contemplating what are we going to do? And a, and a truck drives up or a car uh, inside the inside the gate down the road. So they're coming down the road okay, well, we don't know if this is going to be good, but we talked to him and he was one of the owners with his, I think he's told me his niece and two girls with an older gentleman or 
two young ladies. They weren't girls. They were adults, but younger. And I think one was a niece and one was, I'm not sure. We didn't get much of an introduction. And he said, okay, well, we can't let you in unless we're with you. And we can't leave the gate unlocked unless it's guarded. And it has to be one of us. So, well, that didn't sound very good. But he said, okay, so (laughs) we saw where your gliders were. We don't have a key to that gate. We have a key to this gate off the road. So we'll let you in here. I'll leave uh, Shy with you. That was one of the girls. And leave the other girl at the gate with Tom because his crew hadn't arrived yet to let them in. And, and I'll go back and try to find a key to the other field. So all that happened, and um, Utah and I were back at the gliders, and uh, about 45 minutes later, they appear at another gate at the far side of the field and, and are able to let everyone in. And we got the uh, trailers and the cars back to the gliders, and we de-rigged with help of the, uh, of the ranchers and um, got everything put away and off the ranch before dark. But it took almost as long to... Uh, after landing to get out on the highway as the flight. Flight was three hours, 10 minutes, and the D-rig was two hours, 40 minutes. So that that was the story. Then we drove back and had I um, got back to Tatchby about a little after 10 o'clock. So that was a lot of adventure for a 100-mile flight. <laughs> and it definitely wasn't a race, but it's a lot of fun. You You fly cross-country even when you wouldn't even normally put your glider together because the soaring is so poor. That's the dust double dash. Wow. That sounds like a lot of fun. It is. It's a lot of fun. I've always had fun with it. I've flown at it for a long time. Now, have you won more than once? I've won twice. The okay, interesting nice. thing is this year I won in the ASW-20, you know, 40 to 1 plus glider, and went 100 miles, basically, right. roughly. 172 <laughs> kilometers, I think, was my score with my handicap. And then I won 19 years ago flying the LK-10 which I flew 235 real miles. And with this handicap, I had over 400 points. Wow. That's ironic, and, right? <laughs> and, and that nudged me just past the second place finisher who actually flew around, I can't remember the numbers, but somewhere in the 450 mile range and had a handicap less than one. Totally two different days, I'm sure, of soaring. Two different days. Yeah, that was a strong day. That day I went, I also didn't go up to Sierra's. I used to, with the LK, usually not go up the Sierras because uh, you don't have the L over D to get yourself out of the mountains to a safe landing site. So I prefer going across the desert where there are a lot more where landing sites are closer together. And with an old glider, you can generally land easier in a field than with a modern glider. Um, so the the 235-mile flight was to Hatchapi to Blythe on the Arizona border. I know uh, Tom Cousins did a lot to help organize and promote this event. and. He's actually been on the podcast a couple of times. We've really enjoyed his chats. Is there anyone you would like to thank for making this event possible? Well, you just mentioned the number one. That's Tom Cousins. Tom is the uh, the contest director for this year. It's gone through different people in different years. He's done a fabulous job promoting it and organizing it. He also flew in it. Uh, Tom was one who made it. He was the third person who, who did the dive into the San Joaquin Valley. Uh, and he was the one who got to Taft. So he wasn't able to connect at Taft, but that was a very um, uh, good effort on Tom's part. Beyond Tom, the uh, the Skylark North, the glider operation at Mountain Valley Airport, uh, owned and run by Jane Barrett, uh, are outstanding hosts for the event and strongly support it. And we use all their facilities and tow planes. They make sure they have extra tow planes ready to go. Although this year with only six contestants, it wasn't a big deal. So Jane at Skylark North, and then a Walt Rogers who does uh, the weather for us and is a nationally recognized weather forecast for many uh, major contests. And I already mentioned the originator of the whole event, uh, Rob Morgan, who um, started it and, and is still around. He didn't participate this year, but he does at times. Well, Doug, I want to get you back on soon. You know, um, I, I got a hold of you because I wanted to hear about the Dust Devil Dash and, of course, your experience that day and winning the event. But yeah, I definitely want to get you back on and share more of your adventures in more detail and how you got into soaring. So if you're willing to do that, we'll put you on the schedule here for a later episode. Sure, that'd be fine. I just I just thought of one thing. I know I'm jumping in afterward. Uh, I oh, mentioned you're good. Tom, Tom T.R. Romeo landed the same place I landed. Tom was flying an ASW-27 
So he had a, just a just a very slightly lower handicap than I did. So that's why I nudged past him. But he had an outstanding flight, and uh, we really tied the Dust Devil Dash that I wanted on the handicap. Ah, uh, gotcha. Well, Doug, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate you taking your time to tell us about the Dust Devil Dash, and it just sounds like a lot of fun. So we're going to be checking that out again next year and see what happens. But uh, definitely want to get you back on the podcast here to give your story. That sounds good. Yeah, Dust Devil Dash is a lot of fun. You got to get a crew and have them chase you just like in the old days. Any glider can enter. It's a great, it was the first time I ever flew cross country and out of Tatchby was a Dust Devil Dash flying two places with somebody else. Just come on out. And all the folks this year who were going to come and canceled because of the weak soaring forecast, you missed a good time. Well, thank you, Doug. I hope to talk to you soon. Very good. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. Hi, everyone. Sergio from Story Master here. Today I've chosen a very important topic to discuss with you guys. Emergency procedures during takeoffs. Takeoffs are one of the most dynamic and critical flight phases due to ground proximity and the aircraft's low speed. For everyone being aero-towed, matters are a bit more complicated. We have another aircraft, a cable's length ahead of us, with its own takeoff performance and also subject to a number of different events at different key moments during a takeoff, which takes place within a very short time frame. From complete standstill up to the return to runway height, it takes about 15 to 20 seconds. In order to deal with any sudden event that requires prompt pilot action, the best thing to do is to train your brain to quickly react once it identifies the situation. And a great way to do that is by visualizing during your pre-takeoff checklist the emergency situations you might encounter and how you react to each of them. Take 30 seconds and run a movie in your mind imagining the following situations and how would you react to each of them. One tow plane tire blows out, picture yourself disconnecting the tow cable and you swerving the sailplane to the opposite side to avoid impacting the tow plane. Picture the lower wing passing below the tow plane's wings and you managing the wing tips clearance to the ground. In case you need to abort during the takeoff run with enough runway to land ahead and stop, imagine yourself landing on the remainder runway distance Imagine a cable break at three different heights and how would you react to each of them. During the tow, keep on calling out whether you will return to the runway, land straight ahead until you have enough height to return to it. And no pre-hand which fields along the takeoff direction are suitable for you to outland in the case of a cable break below the return height. Since we don't have much time available to deal with any of these scenarios during an actual uh, takeoff, uh, we must be prepared to react to them. We won't have time to think up there, just to react. So before strapping in your sailplane, take two minutes, that's it, just two minutes. Look at the runway, at the exact panorama that you will have when actually taking off some moments later and run these scenarios in your mind. After finishing your pre-takeoff checklist, brief the emergency situation again in your head or you can call it out loud to whatever works best for you. And then you start the takeoff procedure. But just don't let the routine of uneventful takeoffs make you soft. Be prepared for when it happens. That's it guys. See you in the next episode and don't forget to follow me on Instagram at StoryMaster or check my website, StoryMaster.com. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at SoaringTheSky.com or send us a message on our website at SoaringTheSky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. 
We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez. <laughs>